All right, well, we're going to go ahead and get started. It's uh, 1230. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Daniel Dickard. I serve here at Friendly Avenue as pastor, and I appreciate you being in our session today. Before we jump in and talk about the book, Church Together, the Church of We in the Age of Me, let me just point out, you have this book in your conference guide. And so the things that we're going to be discussing today, you can find in your, uh, your book. Uh, the book was just released uh, this last month in January, and so we're going to be talking about some of the challenges in our churches today. As we begin, I'd love to hear from you because I know that you don't want to hear from me for an entire hour. I want to hear from you. This is going to be a time of mutual encouragement together. Uh, what are some of the greatest challenges that you are facing in your church today? Uh, we all are facing challenges. I'd like for us to begin, take the first five or ten minutes. What are some of those challenges, tangible challenges, that you are facing in your church? We still have that small group of people that quit coming when COVID started. All, oh yes, we're coming back, but you don't see it. Yeah. Those that said, we'll be there, but they, they still, the, the, the CIA and the Secret Service couldn't find them. Uh, but I can find them in a restaurant there Yeah. Now. <laughs> Somebody else, what are some of the challenges that you see in your church? One of our big challenges is getting the men in our church to step up. It's getting the men to step up. Uh, that's, that's a challenge. That, and what's your name, ma'am? Linda Rich. L Linda said uh, getting some of the men to step up in the church is a challenge. Somebody else, what's a challenge that you are currently facing? I'm an AMS, and one of my biggest challenges is getting pastors connected yeah. together. Yeah. And not be so me-centered, but connected. And that, that's tough. Operating in their own silos. Mm -hmm. Somebody else, what's a challenge that you face in your church? Also in an associational context, getting people to come in and volunteer, to serve on committees, just to be involved in more leadership level. Yeah. People being involved in more leadership. Why don't we do two or three more? What are some of the challenges that you are facing in your church today? Yeah, the Pareto Principle 80-20. 20 percent uh, of the people doing 80 percent of the work. Uh, God's plan is for 100 percent of the people to do 100 percent of the work. But uh, m many of us are dealing with the Pareto Principle of 80-20. Somebody else, what's a challenge that you face? Transitioning a senior congregation to ministry for all generations. Amen, brother. Amen. In fact, that's such an issue that we have a pastor that flew in from Hawaii to this conference. He's been at his church for 15 years, and he wants to help his congregation become multi-generational as they are aging. And he heard about the convention, some of the classes that we're going to have flew all the way from Honolulu uh, because they're facing that very problem, a real challenge. Somebody else, maybe one or two more, a challenge that you face, a tangible challenge. People coming back to the church after experiencing a world that is totally different from when they left yeah. from two years ago. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's a lot different, isn't it, post-COVID? Still not out of it uh, in some people's minds. Somebody else, uh, a challenge that you see in your church? The world is shaping their identity. It's not in Christ anymore. The, the me and the we, it's, it's a cultural just tough spot. Yeah, you're exactly right. Well, let me begin by sharing a little bit about myself and how I 
came to this subject of, of writing. God, over the last two years, has burned this topic into my soul. Um, I've been pastoring at Friendly Avenue for four years, but my father is a pastor, so I grew up around the church. My dad's ministry was always one of going to struggling, hurting congregations, and that uh, he would nurse them back to health, and then God would send them somewhere else. It never made sense to me that he would leave a congregation that was finally revitalized and go to a struggling, dying, hurting church. And so I saw a lot of me-centeredness growing up. I'm only 31 years old, but from all the way back to four and five years old, I would remember the stories of how me-centeredness impacted the church. So I, I wrote this book not just from, from my perspective as a lead pastor, but growing up in a PK's home and seeing a lot of different churches through uh, my lifetime that was focused on me-centeredness. And so uh, let me uh, share with you the premise of the book uh, that says the greatest underlying threat to the church today is me-centered individualism. How many of you, by showing of hands, would say, I might can buy that argument. I'm willing to hear a little bit more. The greatest underlying threat is me-centered individualism. Now, theologically speaking, we know that the three great enemies to the Christian would be Satan, the world, and also our own flesh. You know, the Bible says in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things of this world. The world is a great enemy. Also, we know that Satan, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He prowls around like a lion, 1 Peter 5. But it's this issue of the old Adamic nature, the flesh, that seems to rear its ugly head in churches. And many of you have been leading churches where maybe a church member or a committee leader, that it became more about me and my preferences, my desires, than it came, became about the church, we together. So I believe that the greatest underlying threat to the church today is me-centered individualism. And the me mindset that rules the spirit of this age stands in direct opposition to the we-centered mindset of a cross-centered community. I mean, think about it. Whenever you hear the word church, often it's called as a church family. But you look around our churches, it doesn't seem like a happy family. There's bickering and fighting and you know, preferences. It's about my conveniences, my comforts, what I want, me, me, me. Uh, if self-adulation is the church's kryptonite, then the only way that we can overcome the church's kryptonite is self-renunciation. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But the world says, take up your cause and follow <coughs> self. Now, whereas a we mindset, it's about what's in it for everyone by the way of the cross. Uh, but the me mindset, it claws for individuality. Now, we hear it in terms like this. Have you heard these sayings? You do you. Do what fits you. What's best for you. But that's in opposition <coughs> to what the Lord would have for us. So in the book, I uh, separate what I call the church of me and the church of we. Let's make some of those distinctions, and I'd love to hear from you. What are some characteristics that you think are a part of the church of me? Uh, you can just name some. What, are, what would be a characteristic if someone was a, a me-centered church? My pew. My pew. Don't, don't, don't sit in my seat. 
By, by the way, we, we don't have, uh, you know, any signs. You know, you're not paying a, a tithe or a tax for that. Pretty, but people don't, don't sit in my seat. Somebody else. What, what's a, an expression of a me-centered church? My song. Yeah. My song. <laughs> worship wars. How, we're still seeing the effects of the worship wars. Uh, what's on the menu Wednesday night? What's on the menu Wednesday night? It better be fried. Fried chicken, mashed potatoes. If not, I'm not there. Somebody else. A me center church. I'm not coming if you change the time of school. Yeah. Because I can't get up that early. Yeah. You hear it? Change my time. I'm not there. Somebody else. Business meeting. Business meeting. You know, my class. My, my class. You hear these pronouns? Me, my. Go ahead. Got to have this carpet red. Got to have the carpet red. The personal pronouns that we use to describe the church are on individualistic terms. Herein lies the greatest difference between me-centered Christianity and we-centered Christianity. If we could take the argument and boil it down to one aspect, here's what I believe it is. Me-centered Christianity does not deny the cross where Jesus died, but it denies the cross where you too must die. Me-centered Christianity, her preachers will preach about the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus. It'll preach the cross where Jesus died, but rarely will you hear the message of the cross where you too must die. We see, you know, one of the gospels preached in the me-centered church is the health, wealth, and prosperity, where they take God's blessings and no longer is about God's fame, it's about personal gain. And so in the book, I take about four or five pages to juxtapose the difference between a we-centered church and a me-centered church. Now, whenever we use this idea of death to self, I can think of Paul in Galatians 2.20. Many of you probably know this verse by heart. I'm crucified with Christ. Say it with me. Nevertheless, I live. Not I, but Christ who lives within me. And many preachers and many teachers and Christians will quote that verse, but a lot of times our understanding of surrender and death to, 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 in the Christian life, it's abstract. We're not very concrete. And so over the last two years, I began to study the Bible and look at what are the relationships that we possess as a believer. If the me-centered mindset that rules the spirit of this age stands in direct opposition to the we-centered mindset of a cross-centered community, what has to die? And I believe that in the Bible you will find five primary relationships for the Christian. I'm going to give them to you up front. Number one, self. Number two, your relationship to God. Number three, your family. Four, your relationship to other believers. Five, your relationship to the lost world. And if we are going to become a church of we, it's going to require death, surrender in every category of life. Not just in one category, not abstract or ethereal surrender. It's going to require a cross in every relationship. So let's begin with relationship number one, self. You die to self at the altar of prayer. Let me make the connection for you. Do you remember when Jesus, when He was uh, about to go to the cross of the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus prayed, and He says, said, Father, not my will, but what? Yours be done. 
Now, theologians will argue, you know, peccability, impeccability. Did, could Jesus have sinned? Now, we know that He didn't. He's the perfect Son of God. The fact is that Jesus did not sin. He's the perfect, sinless sacrifice for us. But even in that moment, I believe that Satan wanted to thwart the plan of God. We see this all the way back in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is in the wilderness. And Jesus prayed in that moment, Father, not my will, but your will be done. So we have to die to self, that old nature, who we were before we came to Christ. But that's not the only relationship. Relationship number two would be your relationship unto God. You died to God at the altar of Bible-focused worship. We surrender unto God. So, so not accepting our thoughts, our ideologies, man-made philosophies, but instead we become a church that says, the only way that we can go the path of God is by doing it God's way. Uh, there was someone who wisely said uh, that if we want the blessings of God, that we have to do it according to the methods of God. There's a third relationship, a relationship to your family. You can study Deuteronomy 6. Uh, you can uh, move into the New Testament, the importance of the family. I believe one of the reasons that we are dealing with the struggles of today is because we're seeing the erosion of the home. The first institution that God gave us was the home before He gave us even the church. So we have to die for family at the altar of family ministry. Also, other believers. We're here at a disciple-making conference. Disciple-making is a cross. Disciple-making is an act of death to easy believism and casual Christianity. You die so that others can live. Making disciples is not easy. It requires giving up comforts and conveniences, whether that you meet with a group of people in the morning or maybe uh, in a traditional structured setting on a Sunday evening, you're giving up some comforts in order to invest in others. Disciple-making is a cross. That's not our only relationship. The final relationship is the relationship to the world. You die for the world's need of Jesus at the altar of missions. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10, how will they call on Him in whom they've not believed, and how will they believe if they've not heard? How will they hear unless they have been preached to? How beautiful are the hands and feet of those who share the good news, the gospel. And so missions is the way that we die unto the world and their need for Jesus. So one of the things that we argue in the book, how did the church get here? How many of you by showing of hands would say that the church is in a different, the, the church in the West, okay? I, I, let me clarify. The church in the West um, is, is struggling at times. Raise your hand. Okay. Now we know the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Jesus died for His church, so there's reason for hope. But I would argue that the current expression of the church of me can go all the way back to the 1600s. Now we know that sin is as old as Adam and Eve in a garden of Eden and man has continued to move east of the garden. But the current expression of the church of me can be found in the 1600s. Let me give you a, a few a, a historical progressions here. In the 1600s you had 
a thinker named Rousseau who had this famous line. He said, I think, therefore I am. So the idea in the 1600s was self-authority. You may have heard it in these terms. You do you. You're your own boss. You're the CEO. But in the 1700s, for those of you who are history majors, you know you had the period of the Enlightenment. The key word in the Enlightenment was self-expression. And the opposite of self-expression is self-rejection. So anything that said death to self in the Enlightenment, well, well, that's the opposite of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is all about you finding you. Sounds kind of similar, doesn't it, to what we hear in our culture today. Well, you move into the 1800s. Who were some of the key thinkers? Karl Marx, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Charles Darwin, who wrote On the Origin of Species. And the idea of the 1800s was self-reliance. Rely on self. So watch the progression. Self-authority, self-expression, self-reliance. You move into the 18 and 1900s and you have self-deification. And in the early 2000s to now even in the year 2022, we have progressed to the point of full-bore self-worship. You look around as people, they're constantly on their phones, the Instagram pictures, the perfect personifications on Facebook, uh, the projecting of images, uh, that we live in the age of self-worship. Now this shouldn't surprise us that the culture has come to this point, but how did the church get trapped in this me-centeredness? Well, I would argue that the church without discernment accepted it because our budgets were growing. Attendance was growing. Campuses were being enlarged. And we can give a lot of God talk all in the name of self. You know, we'll talk about how many were running and underneath the motivation is nothing more than selfish pride. So, so churches began accepting this idea of me-centeredness rather than rejecting this idea of the world, but church leaders willingly preached it. Pastors, church leaders... We didn't, just, we didn't just appease the church of me, we created the church of me. So you study the church growth movement, Donald McGavern. At the beginning, that movement was not a bad movement, but it was hijacked quickly in its movement. But then you had the attractional church model. Come to our church. We're the best church in town. How awesome that God is was replaced with how awesome my church is. People started having checklists. I'm going to go to a church because of the experience that it can provide me. We began to commodify religion. We created a product on Sunday morning and we sold it. We tied it together. And the reason that most people attend churches today is not because they want to be a part of a cross-centered family, but rather they're coming for a Sunday morning experience. And if your experience isn't the best in town, then they will quickly jump ship and they'll go to another church. And church shoppers always become church hoppers. Let me say that. Church shoppers always become church hoppers. Uh, People began to talk about the church the way that we talk about buying a car or buying a pair of jeans has to meet my checklist, my preferences. We've got to check all the boxes. And so you had this attractional movement that then created the seeker-sensitive movement. Now many of us would not call ourselves seeker-sensitive churches. 
but this idea of we're going to create something on Sunday morning that everybody's going to want to come to. Uh, if you study the movement, Bill Hybels, uh, that uh, Willow Creek, uh, he said, you know, we're going to, he saw what Billy Graham was doing in the Crusades, and he said, I want to reproduce that every Sunday morning. And Willow Creek, by their own expression, they've said that our model failed. But, you know, we as Baptists, we are quick to copy and steal another church's model. And so many churches jumped onto this seeker-sensitive movement. But the underlying premise, I would argue, was me-centeredness. What can our church get out of it? Dollars and figures began to be the underlying premise and goal of the movement. So church leaders willingly preached it. So I believe that there are three rotten fruits of individualism. So let me switch metaphors from a fork in the road moment. I mean, I, I say at the very beginning of the, the book, the church stands at a crossroad. We find ourselves at the intersection of me and we. That being said, there are three rotten fruits to individualism related to the church. Consumerism, pragmatism, and the extremes of legalism and liberalism. Let me go through the first one. Consumerism is this idea that the church is a product to consume. That church members become customers. You know, I, I grew up uh, playing golf. I was on the golf team and so I would come into the country club, into the golf shop, and one thing that those who employees of a golf shop, country club, you're never to upset the church members. You're to do whatever it takes to appease the church member because, or the, the country club member because you don't want to lose them. And in the same way, pastors began avoiding tough conversations because we don't want to lose the church member. They might go to the church down the road. Pragmatism. Consumerism fuels pragmatism. Pragmatism operates off of the gas of consumerism. So I define pragmatism, if it works, then work it. And we started cre to create a self-help formula. Church became a machine that if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll grow a church. Uh, Auxano, our church went through Auxano, and they say that the lower room, maybe you've heard this mentality, if you have the right programs, the right people, the right personalities in the right place. It's a guaranteed formula, some churches will tell you, to grow. Where's the Holy Spirit in all this? Where's the Lord? Could you make disciples in another country if you didn't have gimmicks, gasmos, and, and gifts? Could you make disciples who make disciples? Our, our understanding of Christianity is so Western and it's, and it's flesh to the core. The extremes of legalism and liberalism. Legalism turns preferences into a priority. Liberalism turns a priority into a preference. But both are based on individualism and me-centeredness. So if we're going to be a disciple-making church and we're going to have disciple-making churches, I believe there are some impediments that we have to overcome. It's one thing to say, we're going to be a disciple-making church. We're going to be about evangelism, soul winning. We're going to invite people to Jesus and then invest in them. I've heard Robbie Gowdy use those two words. Uh, we're going to invite and invest. And that's true, but there are some barriers that are keeping some churches from moving from the church of me to the church of we. 
So let's deal with some of these. How do you spot consumerism in your church? When the worship service becomes a performative stage, someone that's talented, gifted, we've turned the worship service into a stage and a a performance rather than an altar of obedience. One way that you can know if your church has fallen trapped to the spirit of consumerism if the worship service becomes a performative stage. The Sunday worship experience. Does it strike you odd that we describe the worship service as an experience? The worship service is a gathering of believers equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. It's not a place where we're to show off our greatest talents so that those who are seekers will want to come back to our church. This has prohibited and kept us from personal evangelism. What's another way that you can tell that your church has fallen trapped to consumerism? Members are turned into customers. We're unwilling to have hard conversations. Uh, For those of us who are pastors, and and by the way, I love what Dave said, uh, that every person is a pastor with a parish looking to be commissioned. We all have shepherding duties, even if you're not in the office of pastor. And yet we've been unwilling to have those tough conversations because of the priority of the customer. How about this one? Other churches are seen as competitors. We're all on the same team. We're on mission together. Earlier I mentioned Charles Darwin on the origin of species. Darwinism may be rejected, biblically speaking, in churches, but the attitude of the survival of the fittest is still around. Self-preservation. What we can do, and we, we are smart enough not to say it, but the Spirit is there. We feel like we have to out-wrestle the church down the road that if they offer coffee, we're offering Starbucks lattes on Sunday morning. Uh, if, uh, if they have, uh, you know, if you have a good children, or they have a good children's ministry, you're going to create a Disney church uh, so that families will come to your church. And we begin to see ourselves as competitors rather than being on the same team. What's another way you can spot consumerism? Pastors become CEOs and celebrities. There's no CEO or celebrity mentality for a pastor. A pastor is a shepherd. Humility. Right now we're going through the Beatitudes of uh, the Lord Jesus here on Sunday morning at Friendly Avenue. It's interesting because when Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, I've always assumed that He's speaking to a large group of people. And I think later in the Sermon on the Mount that He does. But at the very beginning, Jesus is speaking to a small group, His disciples. What does He tell them? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, uh, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The attitude of a pastor is not one of celebrity status, It's not branding or how I can become famous all in the name of God. If anything, a pastor should be humble, gentle, kind, evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. But consumerism, pastors become celebrities and CEOs. What's another way that we can tell consumerism? Evangelism is reduced to marketing. I was uh, talking to Dr. Robinson from Southeastern. We were talking about church planning. 
I'm all into church planning. In fact, here at uh, Friendly Avenue, our uh, pastor of house church planning, Steve King, and, and his wife Paula are here with us. Uh, we've just started a new role, pastor of international church planning. We, we believe in church planning. But I would go so far to say that much of the church planning that we see today is nothing more than branding. We slap a new logo on a storefront, all in the name of consumerism, and it doesn't start with evangelism. Church planning that doesn't start with evangelism is not church planning. That's consumerism cloaked in marketing. So evangelism is reduced to marketing. Another way you can know that consumerism has impacted. Programs are more important than people. Now, I, I, I believe in programs, but programs supplement the ministry. Programs aren't the ministry. People are our ministry. We've been called to the ministry of people. And it, it always hurts my heart to see a volunteer that they're quick to show up and, and, and volunteer for a program, but could it be that they're wanting to keep people at arm's distance rather than shepherding and coming close to help someone that's hurting in life? Uh, you can show up on a Wednesday evening and be a volunteer for an hour in a program and never have discipleship uh, that hurts, uh, discipleship where you are bearing one another's burdens. Another example, church planning looks like franchising. There's a great book that's been written by Thomas White and John Mark Yates called McFranchising McChurch. It was written around 10 years ago, uh, but you know, McDonald's looked to recreate across the world with their franchises. We do the same thing in church planning. What's another way? Numbers are the primary measure of success. Buildings, budgets, bodies, campuses, it's all about the numbers. The only problem with that is Jesus never measured success by the numbers because as you look at Jesus' ministry, as He gets closer to the cross, the more and more people walk away. His own disciples were saying, Lord, should we give our life for you? Uh, even they weren't convinced towards, towards the end. And so if we measure and calculate success simply based on numbers, as Dave said earlier, we have a false finish line. It's about faithfulness. Um, my father has been a pastor for 30 years, and I never understood, as I said earlier, why he would go to a smaller ministry. As a young boy that uh, was not growing at that point spiritually, it didn't make sense. But that's how the kingdom of God works, that we sow in, that not always do we see the tangible results. If you are pastoring, ministering faithfully in your congregation, maybe the church down the road has more people come to it, but you are a success in the eyes of God. I've often wondered, you know, hey, God, and I pray, God, would you bring a revival to Greensboro? What if God brought a revival to Greensboro, but He used the church down the road? Would I celebrate in their success? Because if it's on consumerism, then I'm only celebrating my success for what I can get out of it. Here's another way that you can know. The gathered church is replaced by the virtual church. Has anybody experienced this during COVID? That uh, we can sit on our couch and turn online church on. And by the way, there's no such thing as online church. There's an online, you can have an online worship service, but there's no such thing as online church because a church is a gathering. Ecclesia, Hebrews 10, 25. And the hamster wheel of success, it becomes so difficult because there's always going to be a better preacher than you. 
There's always going to be someone that can offer a better music experience than you. And so we become frustrated because we're not able to do what they're able to do and, and we get trapped into the church of me rather than understanding it's about we. In fact, I would go so far to say that online avatars will not be there for you when you're on your deathbed. But a pastor who has loved you and cared for you will. And so, uh, you know, hey, during emergency situations, can we be thankful for, you know, live streaming? Certainly. But it, does it replace the gathering of the church together? Absolutely not. So that's just consumerism. Y'all ready to keep going? All right, so pragmatism. And again, I said that consumerism fuels pragmatism. There's minimal reliance on the Holy Spirit. We know more about Jesus who ministered for 33 years than we know about the Holy Spirit who has been with us for the last 2,000. From the church tradition that I come from, you know, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit. That's ecclesiologically taboo. Uh, that you know, if we talk about the Holy Spirit, put your seatbelt on, and maybe it was because of some of the uh, abuses that took place in uh, maybe some charismatic circles. But if you can produce a product on your own without the reliance of the Holy Spirit, it's not Christian ministry. It's pragmatism. If your success is based on a man-made formula, I can assure you, it's not from the Holy Spirit. So there's minimal reliance on the Holy Spirit. Prayer is ignored. Prayer is when our need for God gets a voice. If you have the formula of success, you don't need prayer. You've cut out the Holy Spirit and you've cut out God. When was the last time that something happened in our churches that only could be explained by a move of God? When was the last time that we cried out to God and said, God, we don't have the answers, but you do. God, help us. How else do we know that pragmatism, church growth becomes a formula? If you minister to the kids, you'll get the families. So let's have a great children's ministry. If we have a captivating band that sounds good, we'll draw people. We've got to have a creative preacher, someone that can give great sermons. If we have a good kids ministry, worship band, and a good preacher, we'll be successful. Where's the Lord in all that? The Lord may have not equipped you to be the next Charles Spurgeon, Alexander McLaren, Martin Lloyd-Jones, but He's equipped you to be you, and He's called you. In ministry, the call to ministry is unto God and unto His service. It's not into being successful in the world's eyes. You're called, the call that God has placed on your life is a call to Him and to His service. Preaching morphs into a self-help God. It's interesting because rarely do you hear sermons on hell today, on the coming judgment. And listen, we should be winsome tactful in the way that we share deep spiritual truths. Uh, you know, God has not given us a license to be a jerk, but we're also to share the truth and share the truth honestly. And so preaching became a self-help guide, self-help guru, visionary leaders. The pulpit came uh, turned from a place where we teach 
and preach the Bible, the exposition and exegesis of God's Word to simply a place where we have the latest formulas for success. Psychological preaching. And it's interesting because as you study uh, you know, the, the liberalism movement, uh, Henry Ward Beecher, you can go back to others. The moment that you accept self-psychology as the goal of preaching rather than the cross of Jesus Christ, you've moved into the, either the extreme of legalism and liberalism. What's another way? The how-tos of Scripture are ignored. The how-tos of ministry in pragmatism become more important than the how-tos of Scripture. Let me say that again. The how-tos of ministry. Most of us in here would affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. and Most would affirm the sufficiency of Scripture. But if the how-tos of ministry become more important than the how-tos of Scripture, I would argue not only have you denied the sufficiency of Scripture, you've denied the functional inerrancy of Scripture. What's another way that we know that pragmatism has impacted the church? Old church traditions are worshipped. Maybe some of you are facing that today. Traditions are not always bad. But traditions, even in a new church plant, so I've, I've heard friends of mine in seminary, they said, you know, I just want to start a new church so that I get away from the traditions. And I'm like, you're going to have traditions in the first two to three weeks. Uh, whether that you're in an established church or you're in a church plant, you're going to have traditions. But we must prioritize the mission over the preferences of traditions. And we have to lovingly walk our people, teach them biblically, educate them, but the prior priority cannot be traditions that we've always done it that way. Well, if Scripture says that there's a better way to do it, we've got to operate according to the how-tos of Scripture rather than traditions. What is another way? The cheapening of discipleship. Bonhoeffer said, If Christ bids a man, He bids him to come and die. When it's all about a man-made formula, discipleship is cheapened. You have the results. What's another one? Pastoral success is based on results. And this is crippling to the pastor, to the church leader. I could say even in my four years here, because God's been burning this message in my heart for the last two years, but someone who was right out of seminary, fleshly ambition can be one of the greatest detriments to God using you and God using me in ministry. We feel like we have something to prove. We have to be successful in the eyes of our congregants and the eyes of those uh, that we're friends with. But who de determines success? Because if it's based on budgets, campuses, if it's based on attendees, we have the wrong measuring stick. Churches copy each other's methods. There are many of you in here that you would say sermon plagiarism is a sin. But can I tell you that ministry plagiarism is also? Because if you are taking what another church is doing down the road and that you're saying we're going to do that here and we're going to be successful, where's the Holy Spirit? Where's the guidance of God in all of that? How about legalism? The improper use of law and grace. 
I would encourage you to read this section in the book, but I think that fundamentally we have a misunderstanding of law and grace. We can't separate the two, but a lot of churches seem to focus on the law rather than on the grace. You can't separate them, but this is another example of me-centeredness. Correct theology without correct tone. Now let me stop right here and say this. I think it was Dr. Aiken at Southeastern who said, what we say, or what we, uh, say is more important than how we say it, but how we say it has never been more important. And so theology, listen, we're not going to compromise on the Scriptures. But you can functionally be a legalist and be correct in truth, but not full of grace. Jesus was full of grace and truth, John 1.14. Man-made results or man-made rules become divine. We begin to place our standards and we're the arbiter of sanctification rather than Scripture. Godliness becomes a comparative competition. You've seen that before? We think that it's uh, godliness, but really we're comparing ourselves to someone else and it traps us in legalism. External focus without internal change. No rest. When you get trapped in me-centeredness, individuality, there's no time for rest because you've got to keep up with the Joneses, the church down the road, what they're doing. You've got to keep up with them. And there's no rest for your soul. We, we hear of ministry burnout. Many of you may have heard the name John Bassanio. Raise your hand if, if, that, if you've heard that name ever before. A few, if you've, he was the for, former pastor of First Baptist Houston. When he started college, Bible college, there are 40 people in his class. And he heard a professor say that by the end of your ministry, 90% will fall out of ministry. They'll either burn out, they'll have a moral fallout, they will not be in ministry. And so he that day wrote the names of 40 people in his class. When he finished the ministry, he and one other were left standing. When we're comparing ourselves down the church to the church down the road, there's no rest for the soul. What about liberalism? How can we spot liberalism within the church? The Bible is a good book, but not a perfect one. And we have to believe that the Bible is the inspired, authoritative, and errant, sufficient Word of God. We're not smart enough to be able to, to lead people closer to God. We need God's Spirit who will guide us, and we've got to do it according to God's way. What's another sign? Miracles are a myth. Do you believe in the God of miracles? There are a lot of uh, folks who uh, affirm... Hey, have you heard this? Just follow the science. Uh. So, so seems, seems to be a, uh, a phrase today. But you, see, you hear it both, in, 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 in both areas. Watch this. Biblical Christianity, it's about the way of the, the, the Scriptures. Liberalism is not at odds with science. Liberalism is at odds with miracles. And people today, they'll say, just follow the science. But if you believe that we serve a God who is outside of time, who is not constrained to space, you know, the providence of God is not the same thing as the sovereignty of God. The providence of God relates to how God operates within the structures that He has created. The sovereignty of God is that God can step outside 
of the cosmic order and that He is a God of miracles. Do you believe that we serve a God of miracles today? Comparison of sins becomes the means to minimize sin. What one generation allows, the next generation accepts and the following generation promotes. The generational fates. So what we do, we begin to compare sins. And I hear preachers that have done this. They'll say that, and I'm not naming names here, I just want to call it for what it is. They'll begin to soft pedal, let's say, homosexuality. How many preachers do you know that soft pedal tithing? Or soft pedal gossiping? You know, but it seems as if we begin to compare sins in order to minimize sin. But the moment that you minimize sin, you become a mistress to the world. Social ministry without gospel ministry. Many churches have tried to recreate heaven here on earth rather than understanding that the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. And so our job is not to recreate a euphoric environment here. While, yes, there are implications of the gospel, but the gospel itself is 1 Corinthians 15. I deliver to you a first importance what I also received, that Christ was buried, that He was crucified, and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. How about suddenly outdated theology? You know, somebody was recently, uh, I was talking with a young man at the coffee shop, and he was like, how can you trust an antiquated book? Now, the Bible is just so outdated, and I stopped him right there and I said, think about the, the argument. The fact that the Bible has withstood every government has withstood every challenge, and the Bible is still around and it's more relevant today than it's ever before. That's an argument for the sufficiency and the authority of the Bible, not an argument against it. So the greatest underlying threat to the church today is individualism. And the three rotten fruits are consumerism, pragmatism, and liberalism and legalism. If that's being said, so that's the problem. We've addressed the problem. Now, what is the solution? Well, the solution to become a church of me to a church of we is based on the five relationships of surrender, based on the five core values of the church of we. It's going back to the basics. Prayer, Bible-focused worship, a commitment to the family, disciple-making, missions. We've made church so hard because we have to keep up with the Joneses that it's time that we just get back to the basics. We're on the same team together. It's not the quick flash in the pan success. It's the hard work of overcoming flesh and dying unto God and your family and disciple making in the world. And that's how we become a church of we in the age of me. Now I could take you through because this is just the first 100 pages of the book. Uh, there's over 150 more pages where we talk about the church of we. I don't have time today to go into each of what I would call these principal sayings. Uh, but let me just do the first one. Uh, you'll find these in the book. Core value. A church connected by prayer values intercessory prayer. Intercession is more important than innovation. We don't have to build the house. God will. Have you noticed that a lot of times intercessory prayer is nothing more than a segue to worship songs to the next set? When was the last time that we just cried out to God in corporate prayer, asking God to bless and to send revival? I'm tired of hearing about the revivals. I want to experience revival. You know, the great awakenings... 
Uh, I think of the business revival of 1857 and 1858. I don't want to read about these revivals. I want to experience revival. But it begins by prayer. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world, as one Puritan said. And so I'd like to take, you know, we only have about, I believe, 10 more minutes. What time does this session end? Somebody in, in your book. I know one's a little bit shorter than the other. Is it 1? 1.30. 1.30, okay. Next one starts. So we've got 10 minutes. Rather than going into uh, the values of the Church of We, you can read that if you're still interested in the book. Uh, but what questions might you have? Let's take 10 minutes or so to dialogue together to encourage and equip one another. Um, let me begin with this. What ministered to you today? What resonated with you when we talked about the Church of Me and some of those rotten fruits of individuality? What stood out to you? Caleb, not too long ago, maybe a couple weeks, they were talking about a church in Colorado, I believe, that has gone completely virtual. Yeah. Who's selling their properties and all that. And, and in that, but where is the, you know, gathering together, uh, empty avatars, uh, you know, we cannot spur one another to love and good deeds uh, simply by meeting online. And uh, so I think that online, I don't want it to seem as if I'm saying online ministry is not good. No, I think that in the age of technology, we should be doing some of these things. But it shouldn't be the bread and butter. It's supplemental. It's not primary. Somebody else. How are you shepherding your church to be a church of wisdom? Yeah, great question. The book just came out and... Um, I've shared with the church, if you buy this book, all the you know, proceeds, royalties go back to our missions ministry. Uh, and so we're going to go through this book together as a church. Uh, rather than doing it on a Sunday morning, uh, we hold equip classes on Wednesday evening. And so I'm trying to limit that number to about 50 or 60 at a time. We go through about nine-week sessions. That way there can be dialogue, not just a monologue, but where our church catches the vision of the church of we. Um, Starting in March, we're taking our staff and we're going to inspect every ministry that we do. And we're going to put it in one of two categories. Is it in the church of me, influenced by consumerism, pragmatism, and the extremes of legalism? Or is this in the church of we? You know, you've probably heard the old business principle. You cannot expect what you do not inspect. We're going to inspect every ministry here at Friendly Avenue that has fallen trap to consumerism and pragmatism so that our church can truly become a church of we. So we are in process. I believe God burned this message in my heart really over the last two years. And so, you know, the church just got their copies on Sunday. So now it's time to shepherd our folks through this um, to help them see. It's interesting. We have one of the godliest saints, I believe, in all the world, a 91-year-old outreach director here. Uh, and she does it as a volunteer. And 93 now, 93. Uh, and uh, you may see around here, her name's Doris Henderson. And Doris, after she read the book, the book's dedicated to her. And she, you know, there would be a few folks complaining about this minor issue or that. And she said, you know, I never saw some of these things. But now as soon as uh, she, and it doesn't happen often, but as she'll hear complaints, she'll say, you need to go read the book. That's Church of Me. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, I, we're in a season now trying to shepherd our staff and our folks through seeing the pitfalls of the church of me to become a church of we. And you were talking about church growth, Pastor. And, uh, you know, I, as best I can tell, there's not a single verse in the Bible that even hints we ought to grow a church. Yeah. 
So that's totally man-made. Yeah. And I've been so greatly convicted recently reading the Bible. I've been prone to describe churches as big or small, but there's no bigger small church in the Bible. There's Church of Jerusalem and Church of Meeting. It's just a church. Yeah. I, if y'all, for those who were at the Southern Baptist Convention this past year, Josh Revis, uh, a good friend of mine. In fact, he writes a reflection in the back of the book. And Josh said uh, when nominating Matt Hensley for Pastors Conference president, he said there aren't big churches and big pastors. There are churches and pastors. That's right. uh, we're all on the same team. I like what you said about um, how awesome is my church versus instead of how awesome is God. Yeah. And we've got to become a community of churches that work together for one purpose, and that's to bring glory to Him. Yeah. And, and lead others to Him. Instead of, hey, glamorizing our own church, which I see that a lot, you know, I mean, it happens. And we all are prone yes, to that trap. You know, I was. Uh, enlightening and, and piercing uh, revealing was your uh, statement that me-centered gospel me-centered church does not deny the cross on which Jesus died but does reject the cross on which I must die yeah the second aspect of the cross the crucified life uh, there's a book that was written by a missionary to Mexico um, uh, FJ Hugel uh, one of the best books that I've read on this subject, Ellie Maxwell has written a book, a good book on the crucified life. Um, it's, it's that second aspect of the cross, the cross where you too must die. I think, the, I think the, one of the biggest things in there is pastors and CEOs. Um, I, mean, this is the, I, I think one of the worst things we can do is call a pastor pastor. I think they should be called their name. I think when we do that, we put up walls. Elevate them to maybe where they're not supposed to be, and they, it just kind of takes all. Yeah, and, and I think that there's. Do you resonate with that at all? I, I, I do. I think that there can be balance. There are some yeah. folks in our church that, uh, you know, without me saying, they, they just they have respect for the office of the pastor, and I'm not going to correct them. But uh, I'm not going to ask our, our staff, you know, Dr. Dickard. No, that, that's just, you know, uh, you know, I put my jeans on one leg at a time like everybody else, and uh, we're shepherds. We're not on a pedestal. Um, and so I don't want to correct someone if they're doing it out of respect to the Lord of the office of the pastorate. But at the same time, I think that, you know, we can include some selfish uh, reasons maybe for trying to include titles. God's not impressed by titles. Um, anybody else? I think one thing I would share just from my experience in the Lord, I gotta be a little careful how I say this, but attractional based churches that didn't collapse, um, we think about the damage that being a me centered church does to the church, but the folks that are a part of that and then that goes away, it's been heartbreaking to watch how they don't know how to land. They don't know how to find a good church. It's, yeah. it's just discipling them and working with them and getting them through the consumer back to just being a part of a church family. That's a good word. Uh, and it's just gut-wrenching to see that they're losing the years of their Christians. And some of the best years because it's the younger generation. There are some of you... Yeah, absolutely. What immediately comes to mind... Even for those who are spiritually mature, let's say that somebody that you've invested, poured into for 10, 15 years, 
we can say that it doesn't hurt, but when they leave us on a whim after you've married their children, you've held funerals for their family members, you've loved them, you've wept with them, and they ghost you at a moment's notice, that hurts. That hurts. And, and what hurts for me as a pastor, is I, I came back to this town to a church that was a very liberal, left in this evangelical, first Baptist, which everybody's kind of having a you know, heart attack that it's with evangelical conservative, but getting that group to land. It isn't my group that left. It's the ones that are just, the, the attendance in that town had dropped in Baptist churches by a thousand in a two-year period. Yeah. They will land because what they're looking for isn't there anymore. It's, and you know, if this book can be a resource after you read it to uh, the, you know, some of your church members, some of your leadership, um, if you would contact me, um, I can get 50% off, uh, sometimes even 65% off, and I'll send it to you at the cost of publication. I'm not looking to make anything out of this. I believe that the Lord has burned a message in my heart. So if it can be a value to you and your church, some of your leadership, I'll send it to you at the cost of uh, what the publishers, uh, the, the lowest cost that I can get out of it, if it can be of, of help to you. Any other thoughts? We've got a couple more minutes, then we'll be dismissed. I think it also it takes, you know, it looks into at us as well, you know, it's not as leaders, but also as a body, you know, to take a look at ourselves. You know, are we doing these types of things? Are we focusing on, you know, what I, what I please, what I want, you know, and have a service or people, you know, or, you know, is this focused on me? I think it goes you know, for all of us. You know, is this, my knee center or is it God center? Yeah. You know, but I think it goes for all of us, you know, to take a deep, deep look at ourselves. Yeah, you're exactly right. The church of I will not die, uh, but the church of uh, church of we uh, will. Uh, Steve, were you going to say something? Yeah, the church of me consumes and looks inward. Everything they do is about what makes them feel happy where they are within the walls. For the church of we to come about, we're up, we need a church of we so that we can get out in the community and begin to see our homes as a base of operation to people who are not going to come here. And so we've got to get beyond a church of me if we're ever going to fulfill the Great Commission. That's why cool. I love this book. Yeah, good word. Anybody else before we, uh, we let you go? All right, would somebody be willing to volunteer to pray for us and that God would give us wisdom and that our churches could move from the church of me to the church of we? Do I have someone that would volunteer to pray for us as we're dismissed? Who'd pray for us? We thank you, Lord, that we have this conference, Lord, to, Lord, to build each other up, Lord, to, Lord, and go out to the community, Lord, and uh, not focus on us, Lord, to not be me-centered, but, Lord, to focused on you, Christ, and how you gave yourself and your life and your body on the cross, Lord, and have that same encounter, Lord, to not focus on me, but focus on you and to love one another and be patient with one another and 